to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and tokettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Thursday, March 23rd, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode number 912, and coming up on today's show, in the news, the DEA approves a new oral THC supplement proposed by an Arizona company that helped defeat marijuana legalization last year. In our cannabis focus, Judge Neil Gorsuch thinks anti-gay corporations have more religious rights than marijuana worshippers. In drug war data mining, the cannabis industry is bullish despite Jeff Sessions' reefer madness. Our guest today is hemp expert Andrea Herman, recorded last summer in Vancouver, British Columbia. And in the Radical Rant, I explain how medical cannabis and industrial hemp advocates unknowingly harm legalization efforts. Then in hour two, Oregon Senate wants to raise the cigarette age to 21 and debate heats up over legalization in Connecticut. But first, let's get to the news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis Headline News for Thursday, March 23, 2017. According to the MarijuanaMoment.net newsletter, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration placed a new THC oral solution in Schedule 2. In its analysis, it seemed to admit that the new drug has a similar abuse potential to Schedule 1 marijuana itself, noting that, quote, This liquid formulation can be manipulated to produce concentrated extracts of dronabinol for abuse by inhalation, smoking, or vaping, end quote. While the key difference between Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 drugs is medical value, not abuse potential, it's still significant for DEA to acknowledge that marijuana products in legalization states are generally just as safe as the prescription cannabis drugs they're federally approving. Insys, the company whose THC drug DEA just approved, donated a half a million dollars to oppose legal marijuana in Arizona last year. Rhode Island Senate President, who has long been skeptical of the push to legalize marijuana, is out, and the new incoming top official in the chamber is a leading co-sponsor of a bill to end cannabis prohibition. Tom Angel at Massroots reports that current Senate President Teresa Priva-Weed, a Democrat, is reportedly stepping down to take a job at the Rhode Island Hospital Association. Current Majority Leader Dominic Ruggiero is set to take her place, and replacing him as the Senate's number two is Judiciary Committee Chairman Michael McCaffrey. Ruggiero and McCaffrey are, respectively, the second and third co-sponsors listed on pending marijuana legalization bill S-420. After his colleagues voted him in as majority leader late last year, Ruggiero's acceptance speech, quote, referenced the marijuana legalization vote in Massachusetts and suggested that marijuana will now be a key issue in the coming General Assembly session, end quote, according to the Providence Journal. Paiva Weed, on the other hand, said in January that she has, quote, significant significant concerns, end quote, about legalization. In another interview, she said she is worried about, quote, the safety of the citizens and the safety of the children, end quote. The Vermont House Judiciary Committee has approved a bill that would legalize the possession of up to one ounce of marijuana or a handful of homegrown marijuana plants. 
The bill would allow adults over 21 years old to have up to one ounce of marijuana or up to five grams of hashish, as well as up to two marijuana plants that are mature and four immature marijuana plants per household. The House Judiciary Committee advanced the marijuana legalization bill Wednesday afternoon by a vote of eight to three. The bill moves next to the full House where a vote is possible Friday. The bill envisions a system similar to the one in Washington, D.C., instead of the tax and regulated marijuana market that was contemplated in last year's Vermont legalization bill. The Philippines Tourism Secretary urged the media Wednesday to, quote, tone down, end quote, coverage of President Rodrigo Duterte's deadly drug war, complaining that reports on extrajudicial killings were scaring away foreigners. On a trip to Thailand accompanying Duterte, Tourism Secretary Wanda Teo insisted that Philippines was a safe destination, but said journalists were making the country a hard sell because of their focus on the killings. Teo said tour operators abroad were always asking her about the issue, citing Asia and Europe as regions where people were particularly concerned. Since he took office nearly nine months ago, police have reported killing 2,594 people in the drug war, while rights groups say thousands more have been killed in a state-sanctioned campaign of mass murder. Federal officials ruled Thursday that a Colorado woman's proposed trademark on Marijuanaville could too easily be confused with Jimmy Buffett's trademark on Margaritaville. The singer-songwriter uses the title of his 1977 hit for restaurants, bars, and merchandise. Rachel Beavis applied to register Marijuanaville back in 2014 so she could exclusively use the brand on hats, t-shirts, sweatpants, and other apparel. Buffett's company, Margaritaville Enterprises, opposed the application to the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. The Trademark Trial and Appeal Board essentially agreed with Buffett that Margaritaville was a long-running and established brand with impressive sales numbers behind it. The board wasn't as impressed with Beavis' argument that Marijuanaville was completely different and that she would only market and sell in states that support the marijuana industry. And according to a new survey in Vermont, 54% of Vermont residents favor taxing and regulating marijuana like alcohol, but that increases to 57% for a non-commercial alternative. This has been your Cannabis Headline News. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. We about to go get twisted. Y'all coming to what? Nah, man, I gotta hit the books, man. Alright, well. Alright. Make it happen. Right, See you guys. Um, can I get a check? Nah. We straight. Thanks, right. man. This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day, exclusively on RadicalRust.com. You know Herb Thrasher from the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour. Now get ready for Herb Age Designs for the proud cannabis consumer. Herb Age Designs, lifestyle gear for the 420 friendly. Herb Age Designs, we've got frisbee golf discs and durable hemp gear. Herb Age Designs. We've got shot glasses, drinking glasses, coffee mugs, and beer cozies. Check us out on Facebook and online at HerbAgeDesigns.com. And follow Herb Age and Herb Thrasher on Twitter. 
You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. I think that as far as drug legalization, we talk about marijuana and uh, in terms of medical, I think I am basically for that. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they aim you to say that. Bueller. 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 A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we take a look at the current confirmation hearings for Judge Neil Gorsuch. He's appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee where he is being questioned on all of the cases he's ruled on in the past and what he might rule in the future, particularly with regard to such hot-button issues as gay rights and abortion. And in the discussion of gay rights, there is a case that's called the Hobby Lobby case, uh, and this has to do with a company called Hobby Lobby, whose, whose uh, owners, the Greens is their last name, uh, the Greens are sincere Christians who disapprove of homosexuality and disapprove of uh, contraception and abortion and, and typical right-wing conservative Christian issues. And they refuse to provide contraceptive coverage to their employees. And in doing so, they ran afoul of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and its mandates to provide such coverage. And in a shocking decision, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Hobby Lobby, as a private for-profit corporation, had the religious right under the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, to be able to not provide contraceptive coverage because they had a religious objection to it. That's the background that gets us to this discussion between Senator Chris Coons, the Democrat from Delaware, who's questioning Judge Neil Gorsuch on his opinions about the Hobby Lobby case. And in refuting the or replying to the senator, Judge Gorsuch brings up a case of people who sincerely had a religious belief that marijuana is a sacrament. We go now to the Supreme Court via C-SPAN. This is Senator Chris Coons interviewing Judge Neil Gorsuch. Hobby Lobby striking to so many was that the choices of 13,000 individuals about their method of family planning were overridden by the sincerely held religious beliefs uh, of a very successful family. So I'm looking for how you find a limiting principle in this new field. What's the limiting principle now? Senator, respectfully, I don't believe that's accurate either, because all the court held was that the government had to come up with another alternative to provide the contraceptive care it wished to provide. The court acknowledged, the Supreme Court acknowledged that there was a compelling interest in providing the contraceptive care and simply said that an accommodation could be reached that didn't involve the Greens or require them to give up their sincerely held religious belief, much as had been done for churches That's right. and hospitals and lots of other entities. And the government couldn't explain why it couldn't accommodate other entities like Hobby Lobby That's as right. well or Little Sisters of the Poor. But if I might just briefly judge, strikingly to me, in the Tenth Circuit opinion in which you participated, you didn't recognize as a compelling interest gender equity in providing health insurance to millions. The Supreme Court did. They balanced these equities differently. Why didn't you think that that was a compelling interest to provide 
access to health care for millions. Senator, I think it was just a matter of what had been what the record was in that particular case before us. That's also a striking point for me. Um, this was a preliminary injunction. It's a significant, groundbreaking opinion where one of your colleagues, one of the other Tenth Circuit um, judges said, we really shouldn't be deciding something of this import on a PI. We ought to be remanding to develop the facts below. The facts weren't really well explored. And the larger point I'm trying to make is that I think this could lead to some very troubling applications. So let's just t take a minute and look at a few of the contours of what this, I think, precedent-setting decision might, might mean. So let's imagine the Greens um, were from a different religious perspective. If they were Scientologists, for example, who reject the use of antidepressants, or Jehovah's Witnesses who um, reject the use of blood transfusions, or Christian scientists who reject really modern medicine largely uh, altogether, could their sincerely held religious beliefs as Scientologists or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christian scientists lead to the conclusion that 13,000 employees could reasonably be denied access to antidepressants or to blood transfusions or to health care whatsoever? No, Senator. Not necessarily. It doesn't mean that at all. All it means is that the government, under the law as passed by this Congress, with overwhelming bipartisan support at the time, well, the ACA was not passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. I'm sorry, I'm speaking of RIFRA. Right. Or the accommodation is in the yeah. ACA. Oh, and, and the ACA? You can override RIFRA anytime you want. Congress could say RIFRA doesn't apply to the ACA. That's another right. alternative. You can abandon RIFRA. You can say it doesn't apply to this particular statute. You can say it applies only to natural persons. You can say it doesn't apply to contraceptive care. Congress controls this decision, Senator. That's right. It's your decision. It's not mine, with all respect. We're just trying to implement what you've asked us to do. So, and, and Senator, on your hypotheticals, yes. okay, Justice Brennan wrote these First Amendment cases that you were seeking to revive. I'd remind you of that. Yeah. All right? Justice Brennan. All right? And the fact of the matter is sometimes the government can prove a compelling interest and that it's got the most narrowly tailored way to get there. And sometimes it can't. And each case has to be taken on its facts in the particular context in which it arises. Well, then help, and, me, help me walk through, if you would, given we already know how you draw the compelling interest line in, in this particular instance of access to family planning or contraception. How else might, might you weigh these equities or draw these lines? If the Greens, for example, in Hobby Lobby, knew that several of their employees would spend their paychecks on other things they might say were immoral, like gambling or prostitution, could they refuse uh, to endorse their paychecks? Senator, it would, it would go back to, we do the analysis, right. the same analysis. Do they have a sincerely held religious belief? Sometimes yep. people don't. I've had claims. Uh, for example, of but in, but in this instance, wouldn't you agree that their sense of the complicity that you referenced in your opinion would would likely apply? It depends, even though it's very attenuated. Oh no! The choice of their employee to spend their money in a way they disapprove isn't that different from the choice of the employee to choose among two dozen forms of contraception, one of which they strongly disapprove. Senator, I think it depends on the facts of the case. So, for example, I've had a case where. Uh, a number of people came before us and said, we have a sincerely held religious belief that marijuana is God. Okay. It turned out it was a drug distribution ring. Right. All right. And what they really worshipped was the oh, Almighty oh, God. Many of us have teenagers at home watching. Right. Well, I, well, 
And, and they're really just trying to make a buck. Okay. And the right. district court found that that wasn't a sincerely held religious belief. So that, that you can get off the train there. That's one place where you, you may get off the train and you're hypothetical. Um, you got another place you can get off the train. Is it a substantial burden? Right. Another place is compelling interest by the government. Another place is narrowly tailoring. So there are four steps in the process. And you have to go through all four of them as a good judge with the facts of each case as it comes. And, Senator, again, it's all statutory. You could abolish it tomorrow. That's Judge Neil Gorsuch appearing at the confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court seat that uh, was denied to Merrick Garland because President Obama and the Democrats didn't raise enough hell about that. I'll rant about that some other time. But uh, a couple of uh, notes from that discussion that I think are are important. First of all, in the case that uh, Judge Gorsuch is referring to, there's a case out of Arizona, uh, the Quaintance case, I believe, uh, they did not believe that marijuana is God. They believe there is a God and his sacrament is marijuana. I think that's an important distinction, and it bothers me that someone applying to be a Supreme Court justice could so carelessly describe the case by saying we had some people believe marijuana is God, that that is going to elicit more of a chuckle. And congratulations to Senator Coons for holding a little bit of a poker face when he said that. But it's the kind of thing that's going to elicit a chuckle as compared to think cannabis is a spiritual sacrament, for example. And on the other side, uh, Chris Coons, the Senator Coons, making the offhand remark to Judge Gorsuch, uh, a lot of us have teenagers that are watching these hearings once again speaks to how difficult it is for some adults to be able to understand that marijuana is an issue. It's just a legitimate issue. There's eight states that have legalized 28 with medical. Why shouldn't teenagers be hearing discussion about this issue? This idea that if they hear the word marijuana or they see adults talking about it, it's somehow going to lead them into the arms of Mary Jane inexorably is just ridiculous. In fact, what you tend to find is the more exposure kids get to marijuana and adults talking about it as a serious issue, the more turned off they are to it. It becomes boring politics, mom and dad stuff. I I am very lucky to count among my friends some of the pioneers in marijuana law reform. People like Keith Strop, Rick Cusick, Lester Grinspoon, and so forth. Guys in their 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s whose kids uh, are long since grown and having kids of their own. And almost always I find that their kids don't have anything to do with marijuana at all. They, they don't want to have anything to do with it. It's nothing they are concerned about. That's dad's thing. It's really no big deal to them. Legalization of marijuana and talking honestly about cannabis science and the history and the culture around it are not going to lead any more kids to using marijuana than are already using marijuana. And as far as the Hobby Lobby case and this idea that corporations Private for-profit corporations, we're not talking religious institutions, we're not talking non-profit charities like the Catholic uh, Boys Club or whatever. We're talking about a private for-profit corporation given the rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And as Judge Gorsuch puts it, Congress could stop that by declaring that corporations are not people, or at least in this case, corporations don't get the same rights as people. I'm afraid, though, we get Gorsuch on this court, and it'll be a long time before we get that decision happening. Very long. 
Well, that sound means that it's 20 after the hour. I, I thought it would be more of a whistle, but I guess that old file is still uh, living down there somewhere in the bowels of the Liebermater. we got to take a break. Happy 420 to the folks in the Mountain Time Zone. We'll be right back with some drug board data mining. The cannabis industry is bullish despite Jeff Sessions. The Russ Belleville Show, where the truth about marijuana gets more than a minute to speak. Hey, this is Willie Nelson for Norman. And I smoke pot and I like it a lot. I learned a long time ago that marijuana is a lot safer than alcohol. There's nothing wrong with the responsible use of marijuana by adults. It's time we stopped arresting and started respecting those who smoke marijuana responsibly. To learn what you can do to help, contact Normal at NORML.org or call toll-free 888-67-NORMAL. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. There's a piece in the Cannabis Today entitled, With 34% Growth in 2016, Cannabis Industry Bullish Despite Sessions' Comments. Of course, referring to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who is uh, absolutely opposed to marijuana legalization in all its forms. But despite that, uh, people uh, with their pulse, uh, their finger on the pulse of the uh, uh, investment side of the industry, uh, are still bullish on the prospects, uh, particularly Troy Dayton, the CEO of ArcView Market Research. And according to ArcView's figures, legalized pot in North America will continue to grow at a compound annual rate of 27% through 2021. And Troy Dayton says that that momentum will not be stopped by the Trump administration. They say a crackdown is unlikely because of the popularity of the movement and the funds it would take to renew the war on drugs. Dayton says, quote, it's just so politically unpopular, it would be silly, end quote. Well, I would uh, I would hasten to uh, counsel people to be a little careful when it comes to this uh, and, and Troy Dayton as well, if if you're listening, because. As far as it being so politically unpopular, it would be silly. You know what else would be incredibly politically unpopular? Mocking a disabled reporter. Getting into a fight with a gold star family. Repealing the health care for 24 million Americans. I don't have the feeling that this administration is too concerned about doing things that are not politically popular. I think this administration's idea is to make as much money as it can in the next four years as humanly possible. And this idea that it would take a lot of money to renew the war on drugs, we already see this uh, Department of Justice beginning to, or at least the Heritage Foundation, suggesting to the Department of Justice numerous ways they could throw a monkey wrench into the exploding development of the cannabis industry that would only take letters they only take a piece of paper and a stamp to start causing some serious problems. 
And that's not going to take a whole lot of money to get rolling. So I would caution people to be wary of this and, and to understand that there is a certain there's a there's a certain uh, drive, I would say, a certain perspective by people that have big money involved in the continued growth of the cannabis industry to see it with a little bit of rose colored glasses. Maybe uh, looking at this more as business and not so much as the culture war that it is. And there's nobody who's a more diehard culture warrior on this issue than Jeff Sessions. Yes, it would be politically unpopular. The latest Quinnipiac poll said that 71% of voters think that the federal government shouldn't enforce federal laws against marijuana in states with recreational or legal use. And of course, the feds can't go after the medical use Uh, I'm sorry, recreational or medical use, I should have said. Uh, They can't go after the medical use because of the uh, appropriations rider, the Rohrabacher Amendment, that prevents DOJ from spending any money against the states that have legalized medical marijuana. This does not stop them from going after legal marijuana. There is a McClintock-Polis Amendment that is being proposed that would be just like the Rohrabacher Amendment, except this one would apply to states that have legalized adult use of marijuana and forbid the Department of Justice from spending any taxpayer funds to prosecute that. And uh, Representative Polis and Representative McClintock are pretty uh, bullish on the idea that it's going to get enough votes, that they'll have enough support for this. And indeed, if Congress can tie the hands of the Department of Justice, we'll be in better shape. But even then, keep in mind that both of those uh, amendments refer to the operations in the states so long as they are complying with state law. And there's a question as to whether that means does the state determine whether they're complying with state law or does the federal government determine whether they're complying with state law? This is a question that's being asked right now in a case in Montana involving a medical marijuana caregiver who's on trial who believes he can't be prosecuted because of that Rohrabacher Amendment. And then the feds are countering that, no, he wasn't in compliance with state law. Now we need to know whether or not the feds' opinion on compliance with state law matters or not. And yes, the marijuana industry is generating a whole lot of money, $6.7 billion on legalized marijuana in 2016. That is the 34% growth from the previous year they were discussing. But again, remember that one pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, just one company, made over $7 billion in profits. Just profits, not gross sales, just profits. Keep in mind, one Alcohol company, one macro brewer, Anheuser-Busch Imbev, made $8 billion in profits last year. Just one brewer made $8 billion in profits, not gross sales. The NFL is bigger than the legalized marijuana industry at $8 to $10 billion in profits. So let's try to get some perspective on just how big our industry is and how much it's growing. The uh, projections here to be up in the 20 or $30 billion range of sales by the time we get to 2020 or 2021 are encouraging, but they're still just a drop in the bucket compared to some of our opponents and how much money they've got behind them. Pharmaceutical companies, alcohol companies, healthcare companies, private prison industries, law enforcement, rehabs. I I sure hope that Troy Dayton is right, that it would be ridiculous and impossible 
and nothing bad's going to happen and everything is going to keep going just like it's been going and the federal government's not going to do a damn thing about it. I hope that's the way it goes. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. All right, folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we take a look at the wide world of weed with a pre-recorded interview from Summer with uh, Andrea Herman, industrial hemp expert, right after these. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. You're listening to Radical Russ on the Russ Belleville Show. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. Where'd you learn that, Cheech? Drug school. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Global prohibition of cannabis is a crime against the planet committed primarily by the United States. But as more U.S. states reform their marijuana laws, countries around the world are stepping back from cannabis prohibition. Join us now for a look at the international cannabis reform movement in this edition of The Wide World of Weed. Last summer, I got the chance to visit Vancouver, British Columbia, and conduct this interview with Andrea Herman. Of course, the nation of Canada has had legal hemp cultivation for years, while the farmers south of the border in America have been denied that right. But hemp has also been cultivated in many other countries around the world, and there's nobody who's a bigger expert on the international affairs, on the international status of industrial hemp, than our next guest, Andrea Herman. She's with numerous uh, hemp groups, and she'll give you the the names of those groups in the interview. But uh, she makes a good point of covering the Far East in this interview. We talked a little bit about South Korea and Japan and their burgeoning hemp industries and what it's going to take to get the ball rolling here in the United States of America, including what the newest uh, applications of industrial hemp may be, uh, including a question on hemp battery technology. This is Andrea Herman this weekend from Vancouver, B.C. Welcome back, everyone. Radical Russ here in Vancouver, British Columbia at the Cannabis Hemp Expo. And I've run into international hemp expert Andrea Herman. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing real good. It's nice to be back in Canada. I'm looking forward to getting home to Manitoba. No doubt about that. You were just recently in the uh, Korea area. Tell us about your trip to the uh, Far East. Yeah, so I had the opportunity to go to Korea, South Korea, and then over to Japan for the Kyoto Hemp International Forum which was phenomenal. It was a great event, and it's really interesting to see now the growing market for hemp foods, not only in Korea, but the demand that's growing overall, like in Japan in addition. Uh, so at this uh, international event, most of the countries participating have some sort of legal hemp uh, industry, right? Well, you know, a lot of the panelists came in from around the world, so included Ben Dronkers, myself, we had a woman from Thailand, Olive, uh, Paul Benheim was there, Paul Stanford was there, so they really brought together, but a lot of the people that attended in Japan, they were from Japan, they're very interested in changing the regulations because right now it's really geared towards cultivation underneath very strict regulations or for 
the imperial family only. And I found it really interesting that our translators, when we went to talk with the translators before we presented, she didn't even know what hemp was. So you're talking about a culture that's so ingrained in hemp history and people don't even know what it is. So there's a huge education piece there and it's now really starting. It's very grassroots and amazing to see the first lady of Japan come to the event with the high priest and the mayor of Kyoto standing out and fighting for the rights of cannabis and saying this is right, we should have access and change does need to be made and she came there. So that's really good message to drive home. This is kind of off on a tangent, but uh, you mentioned Japan. I think Fukushima. Is hemp being involved in any fight or remediation there? People are investigating and seeing what can they do and how can they. If hemp is the right crop for that, how do they dispose of it afterwards? So definitely a hot topic and know something that you know, is going to move forward there. It's investigating what crops, not only hemp, are going to be part of that solution. You also mentioned uh, the demand for hemp foods. Is that the big driver in those markets, and is it different from continent to continent? Well, as we've seen in all the news reports coming out, especially about South Korea, is it's the home shopping network. So you have a massive, huge buying power of people that are women, mostly, that are staying home and they're shopping, but however you can get it in. So if you're talking maybe 20% of the population is buying off of the home shopping network, and they're buying a lot of hauled hemp right now. A lot of hauled hemp is going over there. So if they're buying it and they can get 20 more of the retail shelf market, that's really going to put the, the you know put them on the mark of really being the largest consumer of hauled hemp foods right now, you know, around the globe. One of the uh, amazing developments that I followed uh, just by covering the news was this research on using hemp in batteries as, as a replacement for graphene. Are there any updates on that technology that you can tell us about? Well, I tell you, that stuff's changing every single day. Part of it is, you know, looking at the fiber quality, the reading process, and the processing. So the research is coming out saying, yes, it's absolutely possible. Now we need to get all the back-end infrastructure in place to actually help drive that. And then also looking at, you know, the craft paperwork that's going on. Very, very interesting on the construction side. I mean, you sort of name it, people are dreaming it, and they're doing it. Well, you know, when I think of hemp, I think of you, and and you probably know everything there is to know, but like you say, it's changing so fast. What in the past year or so has come to your surprise in the world of hemp? Like, it shocked you? Oh, wow. Uh, You know, riding like on the hemp composite bike, you know, these are really practical to people. I think that makes sense. All the regulatory change and and the inventiveness that's gone on in changing what the agronomic and agricultural landscape looks like for industrial hemp production. Because we used to be able, we used to say always, oh, well, you'll never, you will never be able to like, you know, to plant your marijuana looking like plant in my hemp field. Today, we know industrial hemp is being grown for flowers. It's an entire shift in the agricultural landscape of what it means to be a hemp cultivator or a hemp farmer. Is or in reference to those uh, CBD-derived type of things? Oh, yeah, or maybe people that are going for terpenes also. I mean, it's not just okay. about CBDs anymore okay. either, right? I mean, of course, that's a major driver right now, but absolutely. So you look at that type of production, and you look at what the classic fiber and grain seed production it's very different. The labor needs are different. So these are things as we start to look at what goes into that market. Well, what do we need to help support that? And in that infrastructure, you know, do we have the people to work those fields that need to be worked in a different kind of way versus just seed it and walk away in 110 days to come back with your combine and harvest? 
Uh, and uh, so we're back here in Canada. Uh, Canada's got legal help cultivation, but what sort of problems does Canada still need to solve? Well, we need a regulatory review that we've really been fighting for through the Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance for some time now. We're finally getting a really good legway and having the message heard that we need some reform looking at particularly like total crop utilization. So right now we're not allowed to work with the flowering parts or the leaves. So how do we get that from the hemp industry? Especially when we have a fully developed medical cannabis industry here that is able to work with the flowering parts and the leaves and create products that are now being pretty much sold on the retail market and online direct to people. So how do we put a balance in those regulations? How do we start decrimming our farming producers? How do we streamline our paperwork? And then how do we also look at things like derivative testing? Because right now as a hemp food processor in this country, every batch you have to have a THC test done on it to show your hemp protein powder, your hemp seed oil, your hauled hemp, your toasted hemp is 10 parts per million or less THC. That test costs you 200 and some odd dollars a test. And, you know, when we don't have a checks and balances, actually, to come back and say, what is all of those results? And we're saying since 1998, we've been growing hemp made into foods from this percentage of THC in the plant. Why should we, we still be required since 1998 to test for THC in a batch hemp food product? So these are some regulations that cost our industry money. They keep the stigma up about THC as a danger in hemp foods. But now as the hemp food market changes and new processes come on, we have to look at those new processes and say, how do we prove that those processes are safe for people to eat in the eyes of some sort of ready-made food regulation? And that comes into ready-made food regulation. So now we're talking about the food industry. So there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, really important is getting hemp registered as an animal feed for livestock. We need to be able to feed our chickens omegas that not only come from flax, but omegas that come from hemp. Yeah. And we need to be able to look at silage and what that means for the dairy cattle industry in this country. And there's research to help support that. So those are some really major initiatives. And, of course, our farmer support, because without our farmers, we are not in the industry anymore. So plant variety trials, agronomy trials. And that's all steered from the Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance and their conferences in November in Saskatoon. So we're really looking forward to like continuing that work here. Final question, just a quick update on the United States. What's happening with hemp there uh, in various states and, and federally? Yeah. Well, of course, we have the Farm Bill, so now we've got research going on in multiple states. Legislation is changing every day. The government is coming more on board about how to support those farmers because they are farming land and needing to apply for grants and applications and those things, so it's a lot coming on. And now we're seeing the DEA really coming on board and helping facilitate that, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the regulatory framework federally for industrial hemp, opening up more commercial market and, you know, a cross-border exchange and how... And now we're seeing, you know, every state is coming on and saying, hey, look, this is something we've got farmers here. So how do we start these variety trials so that our farmers know that cultivars that they're going to be growing are going to do what they intended to do? And also a huge opportunity for infrastructure, fiber processing, and really developing, you know, and, and finding that missing link. And that missing link brings in opportunity. So much opportunity coming in the world of hemp. Thank you for keeping on top of it. And before we go, just could you tell folks uh, any contact information or websites they could uh, look up to get some more information? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm Andrea Herman, so you can always just Google me. I'm out there. Uh, you can check us out at Him Technologies, The Ridge Consulting, and Him Production Services. In addition, if you're looking to get involved, definitely go to votehemp.com. Go up to that Take Action tab and take action. You know, talk to your community and really ask your elders about their hemp history because that's a part of taking that knowledge and passing it on. And that's what we want to see. We want to see the elders coming forward so the next generations understand that this was something that was always with us. Hemp Heritage, folks. Look it up. Andrea Herman, thank you so much for talking to us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Russ. Have a great time in Vancouver. Well, I sure did have a great time in Vancouver. My thanks to Andrea Herman for stopping by to talk with us while we were there on the floor. And uh, we'll be back with more here on the Russ Belleville Show. It's time coming up for our radical rant. Only marijuana legalization fulfills the promise of medical cannabis and industrial hemp. I kind of answer one of Andrea's questions. Why do we have to keep testing our our industrial hemp batches for THC? Why? Why? Because I like to get high. That's why. I'll explain more about that when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com.